0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 16. That's Exodus 16. I'll be reading the entire chapter this morning. Again, that is Exodus 16. Uh, If you're using your pew Bible, that'll be on page 58. Again, Exodus 16, starting at verse 1. into the wilderness to kill his whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when the people prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know, that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we, that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake like thing, finest frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. "'You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons "'that each of you has in his tent.' "'And the people of Israel did so. "'They gathered some more, some less. uh, "'But when they had measured it with an omer, "'whoever gathered much had nothing left over, "'and whoever gathered little had no lack. "'Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. "'And Moses said to them, "'Let no one leave any of it over till the morning.' "'But they did not listen to Moses. "'Some left part of it till the morning.' And the bread worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long? Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt, and Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to keep it throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years, so they came to a habitable land they ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan and Omer is the 10th part of an ephah. This is the word of the Lord. Well,
1: good morning. My name is uh, Dave Theobald. I'm one of the pastors here along with Matt at Grace Baptist Church and I want to just extend a warm welcome to you if you're visiting here today. We're so glad to have you. Ben Vindo if uh, you're here. Visiting and also uh, it's great to see some friends that haven't been able to be here in a while that have returned So especially uh, great to see Dave and Sherry Welcome home Um, And obviously my heart is also full because my parents are in town visiting and it's always great to have them I know uh, When my parents do visit you typically uh, like to hear from my dad and I'm sure you would prefer to hear from him today but my mom wanted to hear from me today and my mom wins. (laughs) Um, 25 years ago there was a television show called Kids Say the Darnedest Things and it was produced by Ark Linkletter who many of you will know. Uh, That was the man that popularized the whole idea of having conversations with precocious little kids uh, to get their unique takes on various topics And I really enjoyed watching that show as a young adult, but then I got married and then I had two kids. And so for the last 15 years or so, it's like my wife and I are producing the live performance of that show. Um, our, Our boys have said some pretty hilarious things. So much so that we started writing it all down in a little notebook for the sake of posterity. And uh, we figure at least, at the very least, it'll be some good uh, wedding reception material. Um, But as it turns out, it's pretty decent sermon material, too. Uh, In my opinion, some of the funniest things that kids say are, are words and expressions that they've misheard or they've misunderstood and then repeated. Though I like those, but I also really enjoy the kind of novel workarounds that you're that are necessary when a, a little boy has, you know, a, a limited vocabulary, shall we say. So take, take Job, for example, my oldest son. Um, when he wanted to reference something that happened yesterday, but in the night, he would say, yesterday night. He didn't, he didn't know yet about that you could say last night. And uh, we thought that was pretty funny. Also, Job always mixed up his L's and his Y's. So, for example, when he would see people selling stuff out in front of their house, he would say, yuck, a lard sale. (laughs) He he said that yesterday. (laughs) And uh, often what happens with these things is when you think about it for a second, after you stop laughing, you think, actually, that's pretty good. I mean, that's a pretty appropriate thing to call it, lard sale, uh, because people are trying to get rid of all of their extraneous junk. That's a pretty good term. Um, but the bulk of this, though, is from Jonathan, our youngest son. Um, like, uh, like here, for example, so the year is 2020. Johnny's trying to learn the name of the, the Kranz boy that's been coming to our church, Matthias. But it's also a pandemic year. He's, getting, he's hearing lots of stuff. He's getting very mixed up. So he says that this new boy, he's explaining to who he was talking to that day. He said, you know, McVirus. <laughs> and that was the same year as hybrid learning. So uh, our boys would spend, you know, part of the week learning at school. And then the second half of the week learning at home or, as our kindergarten put it, uppercase school and lowercase school. Uh, I like that. And then it was probably getting near dinner time one day when we heard a young Johnny say, my tummy's grumbling. And again, this, this always happens. You, you burst out laughing. And then your, first, your next instinct is to correct him. You want to say, uh, no, Jonathan, it's, my stomach is rumbling. Or growling, either one, you could, you could pick one. But then just as soon as you're about to correct them, the thought hits you and you think, no, you know what, that's actually a pretty, I, I actually like that one better. My tummy is grumbling when, when it's hungry. Um, pretty accurate way to describe what's going on. So you have my youngest son, Jonathan, to thank for the title of the sermon today, Grumbling Tummies. And if it's not already in an expression, it should be because I think it it perfectly describes what Israel was doing during their wilderness journey. It seemed that whenever their bellies were empty, they were a grumbling. And we've already come across examples of this in our study of Exodus. But in coming into chapter 16, we are provided with a slightly more detailed look at this thing called Grumbling. So we want to, in the time that we have today, which I'm seeing is not much, uh, we'll want to consider under the first heading, the problem. And we'll call that the people's reproach. That was the problem. And then we'll want to see the Lord's response as well as his requirements. So that's uh, where we hope to go today as we work through this text. And if your Bible has accidentally fallen closed on your lap, I'd invite you to reopen it to Exodus chapter 16 and uh, make sure that what I'm saying is actually uh, true to the word of God. Let's look first at the people's reproach. The people's reproach. And here's the problem stated pretty clearly in verse 2. It says, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. There's your problem. It's grumbling. There's nothing cute about it. You know, kids may say the darndest things, but grumbling is one of the damnedest things a person can do. We saw this last week, didn't we, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, In that chapter, as we saw, the Apostle Paul was listing all kinds of sins that might uh, detract you and derail you in the Christian life and lead to your disqualification. And there were some, what we would call, big sins, like idolatry and sexual immorality. But then, right, right afterwards, he lists grumbling. It's almost like it's in the same category as big sins. And Paul's point was that if you indulged this, grumbling, complaining, bitter spirit... Over the long haul, unrepentantly, that could lead to disqualification and destruction. And uh, Paul expertly used the Exodus example to uh, help us to understand these things. Well, speaking of the Exodus example, we also learned last week, didn't we, that that we that they are we, we are they. Uh, that that Paul's point was that there is no real fundamental difference between us and the people of Israel of old. And their sins have been recorded for our sakes so that we uh, might not sin and disobey as they did. So if it helps you, and I think it might help you, um, if, you're follow, if you're writing notes in the outline, you can cross out the words, the peoples, under the people's reproach. Just go ahead and cross out the peoples in the heading and write out our get some direct application there if you want to go even more closer to home you can write the word my the point is I'm a grumbler the point is I am someone who reproaches discontent is lodged in my heart and it often reveals itself um, in my attitudes and it's often written on my face so that people can see it it often comes across my lips I can say with the prophet Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips in this respect. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips in the respect of grumbling. Let's just say it. Ours is a complaining culture. Isn't that right? It's, it's no longer a rare clip to catch a Karen, you know, um, complaining against a customer service rep. Those things don't go viral anymore because they're so common. It's a common occurrence. So there's all kinds of complaining everywhere you go. You hear people yelling at other people and upset and grumbling about something that hasn't gone their way. And but then the rest of us, those of us who tisk tisk at such behavior, we constantly complain about our cultural collapse that leads to that sort of behavior and And the irony seems to be lost on us, that we're also a bunch of complainers, every one of us we're, we're grumblers. I say that this is lost on us because grumbling, complaining, reproaching, having a deep discontent so deep that it that it actually like etches lines on your face, these are respectable sins these are things that don't even register on our radar as sin it's very possible to be a, a debbie downer and to be a member in good standing at your local church you and you can never you can be there for ten 20 years and never be confronted and corrected for your complaining spirit you can be deeply discontent and be nominated as a deacon you, you In some churches, it almost seems like it's a requirement for a church secretary to be a sourpuss, not not in our church, not in our church. Well, as respectable and as acceptable as grumbling might be in God's churches, God himself declares it to be a grievous sin. And I'm thankful for the providence that has us looking at this topic two weeks in a row. Um, So I I can't help but think that that's on purpose, that it would be good for us to consider this particular evil. We need help to see that it is evil. We need to help to see it for all of its ugliness. And uh, if you need to be convinced that That grumbling is indeed the theme of this passage, then I would challenge you to count how many times some form of the word grumble or grumbling is used in the first half of chapter 16, especially if you're under the age of 12, okay? I want you to tell me after the service how many of that instances of that word or some form of that word you spotted The the author clearly intends intends to show us the ugliness of that sin so that we would repent of it, so that we would flee from it and that we would fight it. And as I've said, as I've alluded to, I believe the author wants to draw our attention to at least four aspects of the ugliness of grumbling. Four aspects to the ugliness of grumbling. And the first is seen when you consider grumbling's comfortable context. Consider grumbling's comfortable context. You know, in pop culture, there's this popular hashtag that you can use if you want to complain about something that you would only be able to complain about when you live in luxury. You know, like complaining that the, the Wi-Fi, the internet is too slow. Or um, complaining when the barista made your pumpkin spice latte, uh, but not skinny, like you asked. You know, these are hashtag first world problems. And I think it's helpful to consider who's doing the complaining and in what context. As for the Israelites, look at how the chapter begins. It says they set out from Elam. Do you remember Elam? Do you remember where Elam was? What it was? If you don't, just look at um, verse 27 of the last chapter. This is a a paradise. This is a place that the Lord led his people by his own presence and by his own power. Um, he, He leads them to this place specifically for their refreshment. In other words,. I think the author wants us to know and be reminded that these people have just left a place where they're sipping pina coladas under 70 palm trees. That's an important context. And now, they're in the wilderness of sin, which actually doesn't mean what we think it means, although, again, very fitting, very appropriate. And Moses tells us that this is now the 15th day of the second month after they've departed from the land of Egypt. Departed. That's a bit of an understatement, wouldn't you say? It wasn't that they just departed from Egypt. They were miraculously delivered. After 400 years of slavery, they were rescued mightily out of their bitter oppression and their slavery by the mighty hand, by the outstretched arm, of the Lord. And even more recently. I know it's been a while for us. But um, you can um, surely still remember. How very recently. A month even. They were led by the, the presence and the power of God. Through a pillar of cloud. Pillar of fire. Through the Lord. Through, by the Lord. Through the Red Sea on dry land. Leaving you know, floating. Bloating bodies of their enemies behind them. This is the context that this comes in. And here, here's the point. All those people and all we have ever known is grace, love, and mercy. The, the Lord has not only delivered us from darkness, but he has provided everything that we need for life and godliness. We have every comfort in Christ. And can you see how from that comfortable context how disgusting it is for us to be complainers to be grumbling about anything i propose a new hashtag let's call it fathers world problems fathers world problems under that hashtag you could file every single complaint that you're tempted to complain and and thus grumbling would be shown to be as silly and as sinful As it actually is. We should preach this to our soul often. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad. Now the second way to see the ugliness of grumbling is to consider the afflicted assembly. The afflicted assembly. Something else that the author seems to be highlighting is the corporate nature of complaining. So you can also count the number of times that you come across words like all the congregation or the whole assembly. The first thing that you want to note about those terms is that they are essentially brand new. And this is highlighting the fact that God, through his calling and through his deliverance, has formed this people to be a people, to be his people. And that's their new identity now. The author is now calling them by their new identity. They're in a, a congregation. They're an assembly. They're the people of God. A people for his own possession. A people formed for the explicit purpose of declaring his excellencies. But what are they declaring in verse 2? And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Think about what has to happen for everyone to be on the same page about something. I think this shows us the what we might call the viral nature of grumbling it's a sort of mic virus complaining now they say that there's an uptick in covid right now well that's nothing i submit to you compared to the contagion of complaining have you noticed that when you're hanging around people that are cynical and bitter and constantly grumbling have you noticed how quickly that rubs off on you you know, there's a certain crowd dynamic that goes on so that with very little input, for example, you, you could get tens of thousands of people to, to do a wave. Uh, we, we saw about five people doing a wave a little earlier. But you can actually, with almost no effort whatsoever, you can get tens of thousands to do a wave and it can go around Yankee Stadium or Highmark Stadium multiple times. And, with very little assistance, you can get a whole church congregation complaining in concert. And that's why the author to the Hebrews urges us so strongly in chapter 12, verse 15 of that letter. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, Many become defiled. There seems to be a, a general consensus that the measures that the government took to stop the spread of COVID were excessive, and that very well might be so. But the measures that we need to take to stop complaint have to be, I would think, pretty draconian. They, they need to be pretty severe. We've got to stop the spread of complaint among the people of God. And, and it's going to require some extreme measures. It, it, may, it, it might mean that you need to lovingly and graciously tell a complainer to mask up, so to speak. It might even require some social distancing. And with grumbling, I hope you can see how easy it is for a whole congregation to become afflicted, and how devastating the consequences would be. Third, the author highlights the ugliness of grumbling by revealing the real recipient. There's a real recipient in our reproaches. And verse 2 says that the whole assembly grumbled against Moses and Aaron, but these were not the real recipients, you understand. These were just the, the whipping boys. These were just, you know, the the closest objects that could be found. And thankfully, Moses and Aaron understood that. And they rebuked the people on this point. And they do it, you can see, multiple times. They they helped the people to identify who it was that they were truly grumbling against. You can look, for example, at verse 7, where they say, your grumbling is against the Lord against the Lord. for Who are we? What what are we that you grumble against us? And again, it's repeated in verse 8. The Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. The Lord is the real recipient of our reproaching. And we we should ask, why do we do that? Why Why do we lash out at others and lash out at leaders instead of the Lord? Well, there may be lots of reasons, but let me just give you a couple at least. For one, it's easier to impute motives to mere mortals. And listen to how the people of Israel attribute motives to Moses and Aaron. And these are the worst possible motives for this present situation. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Do you see what they're doing here? They're they're accusing Moses and Aaron of being genocidal maniacs. And as outlandish as that is, I hope you can see, it's, it's much easier to ascribe those sorts of motives to Fellow human beings than it is to ascribe that to the Lord you you probably wouldn't dare to say something out loud like that to the Lord, and very much related to this is the is the point that you know our consciences aren't quite as loud when it when we're lashing out at other people, whereas the sirens hopefully would be blaring if we were to say these sorts of things directly to God and about God. But at the end of the day, that's exactly who we're addressing in our reproaches. And on the surface, it looks like we have a problem with our teachers, our parents, our our government officials, our church leaders. Or perhaps we we don't want to do that, so we we want to completely depersonalize it and say, no, I'm just actually complaining about the situation itself. I'm I'm complaining to this non-entity. But we know better, don't we? We understand that God is sovereign. That he has ordained every single circumstance of your life the days, the times, your parents, the boundaries of your dwelling, your personality, your partner, your finances. God is Lord over all of that. And if you've got a beef with any of those things that I've just mentioned, then it hurts to say this, but you've got a beef with the Lord. That's the reality. He's the real recipient. And just a side note, this is certainly not the main point here, but I want to just say this. Maybe some of you might find it comforting. If you're a parent, if you're a spouse, if you're a church leader who's ever on the receiving end of grumbling and complaining, people lashing out, I think it's helpful to have the perspective of Moses and Aaron. You see that these guys are not taking this personally. And that's good. They, they understand the spiritual reality behind it. And it's likely saving them all kinds of heartache. This is a lesson that I had to learn as a young pastor. And it was uh, Deacon Haywood that taught me this. He, he told me one time, young man, when, when people are attacking you, understand that nine times out of ten, there are deeper spiritual problems that are going on with them. And... Uh, he told me that a long time ago, but he's had to remind me of that constantly um, because my tendency is to take things personally. But what a help that is, right? To know that people's beef isn't, um, I'm not saying never, but it's, it's often not with you. It's with the Lord. That's a help. Parents, you, you need to understand if, that your teenager's beef is not primarily with you. Even though by all appearances and by, from all the sounds, that's what, it, that's what it definitely looks like. That's what it sounds like. And it would be a mistake for you to respond to them, to act as if that was the case. It would hurt you unnecessarily, and it would hurt them. You need to understand that your teenager's beef likely is with the Lord. And for their sakes, that's how you should address them. That's what you should address with your teenager. You should address their heart. In in grumbling, we need to understand the real recipient. We're grumbling against the Lord. In the fourth place, we're meant to see the perverse preferences that come out in our grumbling. In verse 3, the hungry people say, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And speaking of the land of Egypt, wasn't that place fantastic? I mean, all the, all the steakhouses, a bakery on every corner. You, you guys remember how we used to sit by the, the pots and just eat and eat until we got the meat sweats? Oh man, good times. Now, of course, none of this bears any resemblance to reality. It's what you would call revisionist history at best. And at worst, it's blasphemy. They're speaking a very perverse preference when they say, would that? And that's kind of an older expression. Um, it's, It's sort of the language of prayer. It's like saying, oh, how I long for, oh, how I wish... This were so. Would that, what did they wish was so? That God would have killed us by his hand in that land of Egypt. Yikes. What did God actually do? By his hand? He saved you by his hand out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, the, the land of your oppression. Do you see what the people are saying? It's insane. They, they would prefer extinction to salvation. The salvation that they have received. If, if they were killed in Egypt, at least it would have been with a full belly. These are grumbling tummies, for sure. And their preferences are so perverse. They're, they're, not, even, they're not even thinking straight. And I want to say watch out, friends, because in your grumbling, in your complaining, it's so easy for us to be careless with our words. For It's so easy for us to rewrite history and to rewrite it as fiction. And since your grumbling is to God, it's so easy for you to blaspheme God, to turn up your nose at so great a salvation. I wonder, have you, has any of you ever entertained the thought that you would have been better off as an unbeliever because then at least you'd have all kinds of time and, and money and friends and then you could indulge whatever your appetites craved. To, to think it, to say such a thing is, is utter nonsense but worse, it's, it's blasphemous. It's a slap across the face of the God who has so wonderfully and powerfully saved you. How how that must grieve the heart of God. How how this must rouse him to righteous anger. And and when we see just how ugly our reproaches are in the sight of a holy, righteous God, we, we can pretty much guess what happens next. So let's turn that to our second point. To our second point and see the Lord's response. We see this in verse 4. Look there with me. Behold. Okay, that, that's a word that you come across often in Scripture. And uh, you'll always want to pay special attention when you come across it, because it means something like, you know, check this out, mixed with a little bit of buckle up. Okay, so behold. Behold, I'm about to rain. Stop right there. We think we know what's coming, don't we? Because uh, we, we've now understood the ugliness of this sin, and we've read and studied the book of Genesis, and this is starting to sound positively noaic, right? It's, isn't this what we saw in the face of human sin back in Genesis chapter 6, that the Lord rained down... Actual rain on that generation 40 days and 40 nights and destroyed everyone, all of them, but eight in that deluge. And doesn't it also sound a bit like Sodom? That's a, that's a region, that's a city, uh, an area that was just notorious for its, let's call them perverse preferences. And we know how the Lord responded to them at that time. He rained down, this time, fire and burning sulfur. And he wiped them off of the face of the earth. Not, Sodom's not even on the map. So, yeah, buddy, we, we know what's coming next. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven on you. Seriously? Seriously? Yes, quite literally, the Lord is fixing to shower blessing after blessing on the heads of these people in the form of food. For one, he's going to promptly send a whole flock of quail that were migrating at that time and in that place. And uh, they're going to descend out of heaven. They're basically going to rain down, fall exhausted to the field, at the feet of these Israelites and so they would have all of the meat that they could eat. It was going to happen that very evening. And then the next morning and for the next 40 years when they woke up, you know, with the dew they would find this sweet, flaky substance. We get something of a description of it in verse 31. It's it's thin, it's it's white. It's like wafers made with honey. And uh, don't think Nilla wafers, but think of those, uh, the, those rectangular wafer cookies that Vortman's makes. Um, th- think about that. That's, what I, that's immediately what pops to mind. I, I have to, those things are so good that I, I could eat a whole sleeve without even blinking. The, the substance is nothing like they'd ever seen before or their fathers had seen before. So the people asked, what is it? And, and in their Hebrew language, that would have come across something like manhu. Manhu, what is it? So the, the substance didn't yet have a name. And so they decided to name the food the name of their question. Manhu, manna. Okay, that's what's going on here. And I think we can relate to that. And uh, as exhibit one, I offer you the it. All right. This is, named, this is a whatchamacallit. They didn't know what to name it, so they named it the name of their uh, question. And this whatchamacallit goes to the kid 12 and under who's the first to tell me after the service how many times in the chapter we read the idea that the Lord heard your grumbling, whether it's directly that, the Lord heard your grumbling, or it's the Lord speaking, saying, I have heard your grumbling. You tell me how many times that's in the passage. And if you're the first, you can have this, what you might call it, this manna. So here's all, how all of this fits together. The people grumble against the Lord. The Lord hears their grumbling and responds by raining down meat and bread on them. And you please don't misunderstand this point. The, point, the takeaway is not, oh, well, I guess complaining and grumbling are effective. No, the, the takeaway is, isn't the Lord so unbelievably gracious? He, here's why the Lord rains down bread from heaven on us when what we deserve is burning sulfur. He does it to showcase his grace and his glory his grace and his glory you see this for example in verse 6 you could ask the text this question what will the people be seeing and understanding uh, when the morning and evening meal is set before them well in the evening they shall know that it was the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt and in the morning they shall see God's glory in some look at the end of verse 12 With all of this gracious provision, the people shall know that he is the Lord their God. Here's your problem, and here's mine. And this is why we grumble and complain. It's because we don't know God. It's because we don't have an adequate knowledge of God. We haven't fully grasped his glory and his grace. And our greatest need is not food, as as loud as your tummy is grumbling, you need to know that your greatest need is not food. Our greatest need is to know God, to, to know the Lord and to be known by him. It's only when we can see ourselves for who we truly are and then see him for who he truly is, it's only then can we begin to grasp his glory and his grace. And it's only then that we can learn to trust him. To understand that he is good. That he's not interested in in messing up our lives. He's interested in our holiness. As much as he's, and even more than he's interested in our wholeness, our hunger. It's the knowledge of God, I'm proposing, that can shut us up, if I can say that. And make us still. Be still and know that I am God. And instead of raining down fire and burning sulfur from heaven, which is what we deserve, let's admit that, it's what we deserve, instead of that, he gives us what we need. And what here's what we especially need. We need a savior. And this is what he rains down on us from heaven. He gives us his very son. And that son lived a a life never complaining, never grumbling. And then he went to the cross to, to die. Not for his sins. He had no sins. He died in the place of sinners. In my place. For all of my complaining and all of my grumbling. And at Calvary... That's where we see the most beautiful display of God's grace and God's glory. It's in the provision of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, by the way, Jesus, with very strong allusions to our passage today, Jesus declares himself in John chapter six to be the true bread who comes down from heaven. And the promise is that whoever comes to Christ And and feeds on him, so to speak. Will never hunger or thirst again. This is talking about your deepest need. Not your superficial hunger or thirst. It's talking about the fact that you need, all of us need to be satisfied in this area of having our sins forgiven. And having the hope of eternal life. And so the invitation, Jesus says that as an invitation, come unto me. I'm the bread that comes from heaven. And so I extend that invitation to you. Come come one. Come all. And feast on this Savior. And if you would like to have someone help you. And pray with you. And show you the, the beauty of Christ. Then I would invite you to come up to this front pew at the end of the service. And there's going to be some folks there that would love to show you Jesus. That's going to be in just a few minutes. In the meantime, I want you to hang with me while I show you thirdly and finally the Lord's requirements. The Lord's requirements. And this will have to be very quick. Okay, you can see that there's a lot of details here that we don't have enough time to dig into. But if you'll just let me give you kind of three big takeaways about what the Lord requires. They say there's no such thing as a free lunch. In the same way, we're not meant to just kind of consume all of God's good and gracious gifts, but he's purposed for us. He requires certain things of us. And these are things that by his grace and by his spirit, he is actively producing in us, we who are his children, who are in Christ. And so let me just briefly mention three, and again, I do mean briefly, I'm, I'm going to be scratching the surface here, so you'll probably need to um, dig into this a little deeper with your friends and, or your family members a little bit later on. Let's just ask this in the first place. What does the Lord require? He requires dependence, dependence. In Deuteronomy 8, the chapter that Glenn read for us earlier, Moses gives further commentary into what was going on here in Exodus 16 in chapter 8, verse 3, he says, the Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you do not did not know, nor did your fathers know, that, there's the purpose, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses says that the circumstances that the people found themselves in was not accidental. The, the Lord made them Hunger, and that hunger was by design. It was for the purpose of teaching them dependence on the Lord, and specifically on the word of the Lord, not just on his gifts, but on his word. And furthermore, the Lord's explicit directions, requirements concerning the collection of that manna are designed for the purpose of teaching people daily dependence. Okay, So each morning they're only allowed to collect one serving size for each member of the family. They're not to hoard it. And in fact, if they did, and some of them tried to, then you know the, the thing would get maggoty and rotten. They're not to, they're not to hoard it. They're, they're to get their daily provision from the Lord. And it's for the same kind of reason that King Egger prays that the Lord give him neither poverty or riches. It's, it's for this very reason that the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. This is what we desperately need, is to be dependent on the Lord. You understand that entitlement and pride and self-sufficiency, that those are the the larvae, should we say, that leads to the maggots of grumbling and complaining. If you're grumbling and complaining, it's because you really think that you deserve that thing. And it's some travesty, some injustice, that you don't have it. And it's disgusting. Whereas, daily dependence on the Lord breeds humility and thanksgiving And joy. The Lord also uh, teaches us and requires of us obedience. Not just dependence, but obedience. And we see this especially in the requirements surrounding the Sabbath. And this is given in verses 22 and following. The people are to observe um, the first day of the week as a holy Sabbath unto the Lord. And on that particular day, each week, there would be no manna supplied. And thus, no manna collected. On the day before, they were to collect a double portion and then to prepare that second portion by boiling or baking so that they could eat it the next day. Now, there's lots of different ways to look at the Sabbath, which we might if we had more time. But, but you could just look at it simply as uh, being for the good of, of God's people. Okay, this is the Sabbath this is a day of rest. And we need that as finite human beings. We need time off. We need vacations. We need, thank goodness, for Labor Day weekend. So we need a Sabbath because we need a rest, but we also need a Sabbath because we need a test. We need a test. This is what the Lord says at the end of verse 4. All of this is designed as a test to see if the people will walk in his ways, if they will follow his law. And what's going on here, I think, is a sort of practice, practice exam before the big exam. The big exam is going to be the giving of the law at Sinai. And this is just kind of preparation for that. God here is giving the law at Sinai. That's, uh, what the, that's what the uh, wilderness of sin is. It's the wilderness of Sinai. And they think that it might be related in some way to Sinai. So th- this is a sort of lowercase law giving that's going on here. So for example, he institutes the Sabbath as a practice exam question. Okay. How are, how are the people going to do? on this new instruction that they've received. Look at verse 27. Some of the people go out on the Sabbath looking to collect manna, and it meets with a stern rebuke from the Lord God in verse 28. He says, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Brothers and sisters, the Lord requires our obedience. When will we learn that we don't live by bread alone? but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the lord and that that word must be heeded. Oh may we be people that obey. And then finally the lord requires our remembrance. What we have from verses 32 to the end are explicit instructions about keeping an omer that is a a servant one serving size of manna in a jar. And this is to be kept among the holy things. And one day it will take its place among the contents of the ark. This is, is going to be a, a pretty special thing. And it's special because it's meant to stand as a perpetual reminder of God's provision. And friends, how we need those kinds of reminders don't we? We we're so quick to forget the Elams and the Red Sea crossings and the exoduses. Exodai. The point is, we're so we're so quick to forget these things. You know, I I have a journal full of goofy sayings that my my kids said, but sadly, I don't have a catalog of all of the times that the Lord has heard my grumbling and complaining and has showed to me his glory and his grace. We must remember. And thankfully, the Lord Jesus Christ has given us bread. He's given us a wafer. He's given us a drink that we can regularly partake of so as to be reminded of the great salvation and the great grace that is ours through the gospel. Dependence, obedience, remembrance, These are not merely what the Lord requires of us. Dependence, obedience, remembrance, these are the antidotes to the poison that is our grumbling and our complaining. And may we, as as a congregation, as as one assembly, the the people of God, be so overwhelmed by the, the glory and the grace of God, which... Pastor Matt reminded us, we see so beautifully and so perfectly in the face of Christ. And, and may our lives, may our dependence on him, our daily dependence, may our obedience, may our remembrance, may all of these result in praise and glory and honor when Christ is again revealed. Amen? Amen. Amen.